Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everyone. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. My name is Dr. Casey Patrick, and joining me today is my medical director, Rob Dixon. Good afternoon, Casey. And today we're going to hit on probably one of the hottest topics in EMS right now. I guess probably is is not even true. The hottest topic in EMS right now. And we're going to talk about whole blood, pre-hospital whole blood, and really try to answer some questions out there that have came from our own medics. So for all the listeners out there, for the watchers on our YouTube channel, this one came from District Chiefs meeting, really, and was brought up by some of our clinical leaders, and they asked us, ask us a question, and we feel like we probably need to answer it, and that is why I know whole blood at MCHD. So, Right, and it's a complex question. I think that you know we're going to talk about a lot today, but at the end of the day, it's uh, it's a very it doesn't really have a simple answer we're going to try to clear up as much as we can about the literature and what supports uh, there are for whole blood and blood product programs but it, it's not a simple uh, translatable question in every service so Casey to get started can we just talk to the listeners what what do we agree on if I'm shot in the chest and I get rapidly transported to a, a trauma center I want whole blood resuscitation for my hemorrhagic shock trauma ditto period at the end of that sentence no real caveats you know this started back in you know the mid 2010s proper was the big big JAMA study in 2015 done right here in Houston it looked at component therapy combination for hemorrhagic shock and hemorrhagic shock from trauma and the old way of resuscitation, when you and I were training and in residency, patients came in with uh, shot in the chest, stabbed in the chest, uh, blunt trauma, shock. They got pack cells, maybe some platelets, maybe not, probably not, maybe some plasma, maybe not. And conceptually, this is, uh, when you listen to the trauma surgeons talk, you know, we don't bleed out red cells. I mean, we need oxygen carrying capacity, but we bleed out clotting factors that are in plasma. We bleed out platelets, which form the platelet plug. So this really elegant and, you know, impactful study looked at transfusion of platelets, plasma, and pack cells at a one-to-one-to-one ratio and showed improved mortality, which is, which is huge. So if we lose blood, whole blood, which is what we bleed out when we get shot, we need to at least try to replicate that with our resuscitation. So in 2015, we said, okay, if we put the pieces back together and we transfuse that, patients do better. Well, why not skip the middle step in there and just transfuse whole blood? And so that's really where we've uh, sort of built the foundation on not transfusing red cells and not transfusing crystalloid, but trying to give back patients actually what they lost. Right, and that brings us, that's a great segue into, I think, one of the, the most difficult parts of this talk for me, uh, because we've both been practicing for a long time. We've both given trauma patients, unstable, shocky trauma patients, lots of crystalloid to try and support their hemodynamics while we were rapidly evacuating them. So Let's talk about that. I mean, what were, do we agree were we on? completely right? Were we completely wrong? Or were we somewhere in the middle on crystalloid? And, and we're still in the what do we agree on piece of the talk. And really after reviewing this and looking at it with fresh 2022 eyes, I feel 
probably more strongly than I have in that crystalloid is bad. We, we agree that crystalloid in trauma resuscitation is bad. And, you know, we're not cretins around here. We try to follow the evidence and look uh, where the evidence takes us. And this brings us to the concept of, of permissive hypotension. Don't fall out of your chair over there. <laughs> um, permissive hypotension is a you know, five or 10 year old concept, just like a lot of these. The idea being that if a patient is in hemorrhagic shock or perihemorrhagic shock and you flood them with salt water, then you are going to potentially do several things. You may blow the clot that the patient has formed with a rapid volume introduction. That one to me seems more theoretical than actual. If I was going to give you my physiologic best guess, it's that if that patient is trying to form a clot on their fractured liver or fractured spleen and you flood them with salt water, saline or LR, then you're obviously going to cool them so they're going to become hypothermic, which makes them cold, coagulopathic, yep. and then acidotic, right? That terrible triad of, of what, what happens when we bleed to death. And, you know, I, the permissive hypotension, I think it gets overthought and overused, which is my worry as a medical director, that it will be overused and we will not, will do nothing to patients who are bleeding to death. As Casey said, I think what we can agree on is source control is super important. If we have uh, easily source control, so don't forget your tourniquets, don't forget uh, direct pressure. Direct pressure. In uh, some amount of, you know, it, it may not be the perfect thing that we have, but if we have Chris Lloyd, if we are going to use it, we need to use it in limited amounts. Right. Understanding that there's, there's clearly, I acknowledge a downside. I just have a very hard time letting a patient in shock who's bleeding to death from something that I've either control the source, or maybe it's a, a case I can't control the source, of trying to support their hemodynamics just long enough to where we can get them to definitive care so we can get source control and blood products and those things we want. So where do we go with that? Number one, there's a difference in a 500cc saline or LR bolus and three liters. I mean, we have to think about our service-specific aspects. That's what we're doing with this entire discussion. Here at MCHD, our transport times for our trauma activation patients, our sickest shocky trauma patients, is under 20 minutes. So there's no reason we should ever be giving a trauma patient two and three liters of, of saline or two or three liters of LR. It just shouldn't happen from a time standpoint. So source control, tourniquet, absolutely. And if we can't put a tourniquet or direct pressure on it, then that patient needs to be under 10 minute scene time and to our trauma center ASAP. So source control can happen. The studies that look at permissive hypotension, the problem is it's not clearly defined. So is it a map of 55, a map of 60? Is it a systolic of 80, a systolic of 90? That data is murky, murky, murky. And really when you dig into these studies and look at them closely, you know, they come from the early 2000s. So a lot of the comparators in these studies is large volume crystalloid, right. which, we, can which we know is bad. Which we can agree we is agree. bad. We agree. So, in the end, what we're going to look towards and, you know, a preview of coming attractions for the MCHD listeners after putting this together and really thinking about this for the last month or so, several conversations, being at NAMSP 2022, yeah. having a lot of whole blood discussions and, and blood resuscitation talks. We've talked about freeze-dried plasma before here on the podcast. We, we really want to have a better resuscitative fluid than crystalloid. So probably it makes sense to limit that. And where are our limits going to fall? Is it going to be 500 cc's? Is it going to be a liter? Uh, 
not hashed out 100% yet, but for the MCHD folks, you're probably going to have a limit on crystalloid resuscitation in your shock trauma patients that should be a natural limit based on time. Based on time. Based, based on, on time. Scene if time short, transport time short. Right, I agree. If we're getting three or four liters in there, we're spending too much time dawdling. We need to put more diesel towards the problem. Couldn't agree more. Let's shift to whole blood. Let's go back to whole blood. And as we talked about earlier, guys, it's not a simplistic decision, right? And I'm going to let Casey kind of go into some of the stuff. He's done a lot of the heavy lifting on really reviewing this literature. You know, we talked about, we started where the concept started um, and really extrapolated from the proper trial. Let's talk about some of the intricacies of a whole blood program. So we have to take into account that Every EMS system is different. That's one of those EMS conference bingo cards. If you've seen one EMS system, you've seen one EMS system. Every time I hear it, it makes me want to seize. <laughs> but it is 100% true in this case because how you roll out or how you consider a blood resuscitation program within your individual EMS system is going to depend on tons of factors. This is not a product that you can just stock in a drawer and uh, you know, on every ambulance or on your, every helicopter and move on to the next QIQA element. You've got to c- consider your area size and you've got to consider your transport times. Yeah. If you have an urban environment with uber short transport times to trauma centers, is that the same if you look at, we'll talk about funny, PAMP. Funny you said that, the Uber, the Uber study, right? Where yeah. they chucked these people in an Uber and guess what? They did what they did better, right? So because they got to definitive source control quicker. So if you look at Pamper, for example, which was the pre-hospital plasma trial that showed significant mortality benefit, uh, just a very impactful, well-done study. It's been talked about for the last couple years, and they've done a lot of secondary analysis studies off of Pamper. But the transport times in the Pamper study were 40 minutes. And those were helicopter EMS systems. Does that apply to a 19-minute average trauma activation transport time and a ground-based 911 service? It's one of the core concepts of any literature review. When we did Journal Club, the intern year at Indiana University, both of us went to the same evidence-based medicine teachers and the same mentors. You have to look at your patient populations and your system specifics to make sure that the comparisons that you're you're going to try to make and the extrapolations you're going to try to make carry over what about blunt versus penetrating ratio think about hemorrhagic shock trauma as a whole is the is the same disease process happening in a patient that has a ruptured liver and spleen from a rollover mvc compared to an explosive device in iraq with a with an arm blown off compared to a gunshot wound to the chest from a nine millimeter those are just vastly vastly different, different animals different let's animals. let's talk about something that uh more relatable data let's talk about san antonio our colleagues uh down in san antonio at the track they've done have been really led the way in texas and and really throughout the nation on on, on building a system uh both ground and air this regional uh, uh system uh, blood product administration. Let's you just talk about those guys. I mean, they've done tremendous work down there. But the data, you know, the data is still early. And there's a lot of differences when you really kind of look into it. It may not relate to your patient population. Here in Montgomery County, we're 70-30 blunt to penetrating trauma. And I suspect in San Antonio, at least in their whole blood group, 
it was double the penetrating numbers versus the blunt group. Well, let's let's dig into that a little bit. So, first and foremost, I mean they deserve all the accolades, all the credit, all the prestige and and publicity that they've gotten. Their program from uh, waste minimization to you know their their donor program, um, just the, the way that they've laid the foundation for their for their rack for their area is absolutely amazing. I would take away zero from anything that they've done. So I want to be really clear about that before we you know dig into some of the details. And and they really have been the the nationwide leader, world leader for pre-hospital whole blood. And that's um, you know that's just thousands and thousands and hours of work. Likely millions of dollars have gone into that. Just uh, you know total total respect for that and for all the work they've put into it. And they've, you know, they based this on, you know, Pamper, which was a helicopter EMS plasma trial. They've, you know, they based this around other uh, studies that have looked at, you know, moving to blood components or whole blood in, in the field. Um, but if you look at the initial data that's trickling out, there's been some uh, descriptive studies that exist. There's been some you know, financial cost base analysis that are out there. They did publish a study in transfusion in 2021, so just last year, that was the first sort of outcomes-based report that, that I can find for pre-hospital whole blood. And they demonstrate improved shock index with whole blood in the field, which shock index Heart rate over systolic, uh, yeah. definitely a marker of definitely a surrogate marker of not shock. A, not a patient-oriented outcome, but a surrogate marker. We think may may be associated with a, some benefit. But dig into dig into the details a little bit, and they show no difference in long-term long-term mortality. The study is admittedly small; it's retrospective, so anything retrospective as compared to prospective is going to introduce more bias. And if you look at the whole blood group, the whole blood group in this study was double the rate of penetrating trauma as the standard care. So it's really an apple and orange sure. comparison there. No mention of transport times, still important. And if I'm hung up on transport times or you feel like that I'm hung up on transport times, if you look at some of the other evidence, if you look at Pamper, for example, which is mortality benefit with plasma and HIMS mortality benefit, prospective, great. But if you look at that study closely, their transport times were 40 minutes. We're at 19 minutes here at MCHD. If you look at Moore, Lancet, 2018, plasma versus saline in pre-hospital ground-based care. Yeah. This one was out of Denver. The transport times were less than 90 minutes or less than, less 20, than 20 minutes, minutes in that study. So 19 minutes. In 16. 16 minutes. Randomized and prospective. Was there any benefit to pre-hospital plasma in that study? No benefit, guys. No so benefit. So these are, you know... It's, it's hard. There's not a one-size-fits-all. This is not an easy easy question or an easy answer. And I think what Dr. Patrick is saying is you've got to look at system-specific things. I mean, we're 1,100 square miles up here. Everybody has financial constraints. I cannot put a unit of whole blood on every ambulance. It's just not, not feasible from a program, uh, from a waste standpoint. And then I ask myself, how much harm am I potentially doing by delaying a transport for definitive source control? What is, what's the potential downside for the patient? Well, let's, you, you hit on cost. Um, Seattle Fire, also well-respected, uh, just top-notch researchers, nothing but 
admiration and respect for all they do in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and out-of-hospital airway management. And they have also uh, initiated a whole blood, whole blood program there in Seattle. This was also published in 2021 in Transfusion. They reported a low cost. So I would say to you, uh, Dr. Dixon, they're, they're reporting low cost at, at Seattle Fire. So your cost issue is really not a big deal. What they what they leave out? I think they probably probably left out a fair amount. We just kind of extrapolated our service, so we have about 250 folks we'd have to train in a minimum. Say we only did four hours, and say if that average overtime salary was going to be 50 bucks an hour, you can do the math on that. That's our entire budget for a blood product program for one training. That's before we bought one blood warmer. We've not bought one unit of blood. We've not. Uh, you know, bought the tubing and all the accessories. We've not set up the QAQI from the staff, the medical directors. I mean, it's not a simple question, and it's hundreds and hundreds of hours of of labor. That I would I would think the San Antonio guys would agree with us that this didn't just happen overnight. It was well thought out. It, it had tons and tons of medical director uh, oversight there, uh, and just from a system that it's a massive system down there at Strack. Yeah, and, and, and same in Seattle. Correct. You know, uh, and I would, to, to describe and to, to be fair to them, they noted in their study that they only were calculating the cost of the blood units, that the other costs were rolled in to the budget as overall service costs. So warmers, tubing, coolers, future management, you know, you need a half an FTE or an FTE to, to manage this on a daily ba basis to prevent risk and waste. Uh, who knows? So service specific, they notice that. Uh, I, I would conservatively estimate for three years, three to five years at MCHD, if we're going to initiate a whole blood program and we're going to roll it out, start to finish, hours, education, management, waste prevention, QIQA, supplies the blood itself we're easily into seven figures i don't think that's an exaggeration at all i the board's going to ask us we're not sure. going to be able to roll that into total service costs and not be asked a question about a seven figure plan right. going forward and that's you know if there was clear mortality benefit that i could bring the board from a pre-hospital standpoint at a transport time of 19 minutes in a ground-based service then we would absolutely right. go to bat for a million dollar plus venture. But without evidence, it's it's really tough. So what would it take for you as a medical director to adopt the program? Where are we gonna go? Right, it's just the stuff and I'll, uh, I'll just kind of rehash and, and summarize some of the points we've talked about. First, I think one of the things we haven't talked about is if you look at the national headlines, if you looked at the national news in the last week, we are in a blood shortage, a blood crisis in this country. Uh, this is a, a human product, a, a tissue product um, that is very, very uh, rare resource here uh, and that we absolutely would not engage in a program that did not spend every bit of capital we could spend uh, to minimize waste and to, to cherish this, this, uh, this tissue product. I mean, I think that people, you cannot minimize, I cannot overstate the importance of minding, being mindful of that, that this is a life-saving. I would agree with the great doctors that started this work uh, at UT that yes, I would love to get the blood as close to the sick patient as I absolutely can 
but it's not that simple of a question. I mean, there's lots of intricacies there and lots of, lots of um, things to consider. Another thing is what I haven't read from the studies, and Casey and I and our team here talk about this all the time, I really wanna look at, it seems related to transport time. I mean, there's lots of, of direct data that's, that leads us to believe that yes, if you have a really long transport time, you're in a rural hospital, you have a gunshot victim, absolutely, is there gonna be some mortality benefit in whole blood in those patients? Couldn't agree more, fire away. But in a transport time that's, that's low, less than 20 minutes, that really hasn't been demonstrated in a really well done well, large study. And the flip side is, if you look at transport time data, you know, the idea of the, goal, the, idea of the golden hour has definitely been questioned. It has. For trauma. You know, is there really a golden hour for trauma? And looking at transport time uh, evidence and the, and the manuscripts in that area, man, it's murky. Whether or not you're truly going to have a mortality benefit by having a quicker transport scene time. But when you just start to pull out the different patient populations, because trauma, blunt, penetrating, shock, non-shock, that's as widely variable as you can get. If you pull out the hemorrhagic shock patients, especially the penetrating hemorrhagic shock patients, those are the ones that the quicker you get them to the hospital, the better outcomes you have. Absolutely. And that's, that's consistent across some inconsistent right. data. And that's, that's what we focus on. That's what we built our trauma system around here at MCHD is getting these folks off scene and to source control. And if you could put blood on every ambulance, then maybe you don't delay scene time. But I, that's in a 30 truck system, 1100 square miles, you wanna talk about millions, you're going into millions really quickly. So what I would like for Christmas in 2022 is a transport time before and after your whole blood system when you're putting it on fly cars or supervisor vehicles. Yeah. Did no, you, I agree. Did I think, your, and, did your and scene and I think transport our, times change? I think our colleagues at, at the uh, Harris County Mercy Corps, they've got a, a, a component blood therapy program and I think they're following that data, it's early. It's still early, like I say, our colleagues kind of led the way in San Antonio. This is spread kind of organically throughout the nation and really throughout the world. And I think we're gonna see lots and lots more data that's gonna help guide us on how to best develop these for a particular system. So you used a really great analogy I wanna go back to because I think it sums up a lot of the, the outcome evidence. And you, you made the analogy to what would be on our wish list What's really, really works, ECMO really, really works yeah, if in, you look at, at a hospital of cardiac arrest. Yeah, if you look at the arrest trial from last year in, in Minneapolis and Dr. Yiannopoulos, they had to stop the, the prospective study, you know, with 40 patients or so because the difference was so stark between standard ACLS for refractory VF and ECPR. ECPR. And, and so, I mean, I want to take our refractory VF patients, scoop them off scene, rapid scene time, and take them to a hospital in Montgomery County where they get ECMO 24-7, 365. But guess what? We don't have that hospital. So recreating Dr. Yiannopoulos and Minnesota's ECMO experience and trying to replicate the arrest trial is, is impossible for us because it takes too many external pieces to, to be in place for it to show the same survival and mortality benefit here in Montgomery County. And there's prospective data 
that shows mortality benefit. So patient-oriented outcome we care about. Did you, di did you die or did you live? Did you die or live well? Did you die or live well is there for ECMO, and we still can't pull the trigger on that because of all the moving pieces. There's more data for e CPR, prospective outcome, you know, patient-based data points than there is for whole blood in a ground-based couldn't agree more. I think, that, system. I think when you when we talk and and I know this is about blood, but Brad would be very uh, upset if I didn't show my support for the concept of eCPR in a, a very tightly regulated patient selection criteria like Dr. Adopoulos and, and our colleagues in Minnesota have developed and a, a regional system of care. Are we there today? No. Have we been working on this, actually thinking about it on the team for before I got here. Yeah. This Same. first thing that Brad Ward told me when I got here in 2014. And to the MCHD. First thing he wanted to talk yeah, about. Yeah, to the MCHD <laughs> district chiefs and captains yeah. and in charges out there. Same with whole blood. We are absolutely working to forge par partnerships with our blood banks, with our surrounding services, with our uh, receiving hospitals and our trauma centers to try and recreate and try to mimic what STRAC has done so well but some of those are out of our hands so when they're out of our hands we we can't just put our piece into place and leave out the blood exchange yeah. and the blood donation and the trauma center buy-in and expect it to work just like it works in san antonio that would be wasteful potentially harmful um and very just barely very poorly thought out so what about alternatives where can we yeah, go I with mean, alternatives so we talked a lot about where we want to go not where we are right now. So for right now, we have some alternatives and we have some really promising alternatives. Um, you know, TXA, I think that you all are pretty familiar. We've done podcasts on this before, uh, the crash trial and the matter study. Uh, the benefit is not huge, huge, but over a, a number of people, I think it, it does support it. Now understand that I'm not going to go back to that, but you have to give it within three hours. Got to give it within three within hours. three hours, or you can possibly cause some harm. And it, it looks like it's only useful for the sickest of the sick, so it's for our hemorrhagic shock trauma. And our dose is increased based on some preliminary military yeah. evidence. We're up, we're up to that two grams, two grams, and there's folks out there that believe we maybe should go higher at some point, so we'll be watching that closely. We've talked before on the podcast sort of peripherally, uh, here and there about our desire to move forward with freeze-dried plasma. Uh, Telflex has the patent on uh, the U.S. Uh, FDA approval process freeze-dried plasma product. The French have used it. The Israeli military has used freeze-dried plasma for several years. It's it's really, to me, the perfect solution for perfect what we DMS need. Perfect DMS solution if um, we can get it you know, FDA approved and get it operationalized. I mean, it's so much easier to operationalize a small vial that's good for a year that you could put on every truck, deploy on every truck, reconstitute with, you know, 100 mLs of sterile water and hang in, and really, I think, do potentially a lot of benefit for our, our shock little Little e evidence summary here, um, you know, transfusion data uh, from uh, the Israeli folks showed minimal decline in clotting factors under field conditions. Obviously, you had as you got hotter, you had more decline in your, in your clotting factors, but the gist of that study said that, hey, you can keep this thing on the shelf and it doesn't deteriorate over that 12 to 18 month period significantly. The hotter you get, the more it's gonna degrade. Not shocking when you're dealing with proteins. Um, it's been used in pediatrics. Uh, the French showed that 
Uh, Freeze-dried plasma is quicker than fresh frozen plasma with less massive transfusion. Makes sense. you got to thaw fresh frozen plasma because it was frozen before it was fresh. Uh, so freeze-dried plasma tops that from a quickness standpoint. Um, uh, you know, it, your coags are maintained with freeze-dried plasma. Uh, there's been some UK data that looked at adding freeze-dried plasma to a hem service there. And when comparing that, it was quicker and less overall pack cells were given to those patients while they were in transport. So we see all that data and say that's what we ask, that's what we're asking for. Something that has shelf life, something that's quick, something that provides the patient really what they probably need more than anything. When you listen to the folks that are, you know, the loudest drum beaters for plasma and plasma resuscitation in emergency trauma and in pre-hospital trauma, it's that really oxygen carrying capacity is not the killer in these folks, it's the coagulopathy and the bleeding. So if you could pick one of the components, probably should give the clotting factors and that's where plasma lives. So to us, really we think that freeze-dried plasma, assuming FDA approval for our product here in America happens hopefully this year and we've been we in hope. discussions with Teleflex um, regarding you know where they are in their process. We really like to be early on because we feel like there's international data that supports its safety and that we will be safe to move forward with that quickly. You know, component therapy is still, you know, I talked about Harris County Emergency Corps. They, they have some component therapy uh, in, their, in their vehicles now. Uh, this really suffers from the same downsides as a whole blood program, honestly. If but, but there's almost more moving parts, yeah. right? It's yeah. three to one moving parts. And I think as our colleagues uh, on the podcast I listened to, the, the uh, surgeons from downtown, right? The, the risk of transfusion, some transfusion reaction is three times as much, right? Then you have three donors, right? As opposed Not to one. As opposed to one. So, uh, you know, it's, I think that it's, it's even more difficult to operationalize this. I'm hopeful for the data coming out from the Harris County group, but we'll see, see how that goes. What about calcium? Hey, you know, it's been kind of the rage of, you know, should we give calcium? You know, we talk about that terrible triad uh, you know, coagulopathy and cold and acidosis, and acidosis yeah. you know, and what about calcium? Well, there's been some, you know, people out there in the, in the, in the FOMED world and uh, that are blog readers and, and Twitter folks. And there's been a lot of calcium forward stuff over the last year. And we know that when we give blood products, we're going to drop the calcium based on some of this, some of the storage and, and preservative agents that exist. We know that calcium is vital for the coagulation cascade. Uh, it's also vital for, you know, temperature homeostasis. So is the idea of calcium in a shock trauma patient make total sense? Absolutely. Where does it go in the process? There's not a whole lot of evidence. Does it go before the transfusion? Does it go after the transfusion? What's your dose? Who's your patient? There's really, to me, that it, best I can see, and if you've got it and you would like to share it with us, I'm happy to see it. I don't see any pre-hospital, pre-transfusion data that would lead me to believe this is beneficial to give blindly before we have given whole blood or before we have given one-to-one-to-one. -to -one -to -one. If I'm in the ED and I'm in a massive transfusion situation, whether it's a hospital where I'm doing one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one or whole blood, I'm absolutely giving calcium with, with each round of transfusion, 100%, because we know that's going to plummet their calcium. But giving it in the truck before you've given blood. I don't know if that's where it goes in the, in the pathway, and I'm not sure anyone does. So 
we're watching, we're listening, mm-hmm. but you know, just because it's logical doesn't mean it leads to positive outcomes. There's a lot of uh, logical uh, medical therapies and procedures that are littered on the highway behind us because they've caused bad outcomes when they made total sense in thought. Talk about where one of the really interesting things that actually I had never thought about, had not heard about until we did, Casey did this deep dive with the team on really this concept of all blood products and came up with a little bit of data for fibrinogen concentrate. Let's talk about that for a minute. Is that is that a possibility? Well, fibrinogen con- concentrate was something I didn't know existed either until we you know, spent the weekend, um, should have been out, out watching football, but instead I was <laughs> dorking out on, on this, on putting this together. Uh, the Canadian military has, uh, helicopter folks have been using fibrinogen concentrate uh, for their shock trauma patients in, in austere environments. Uh, there is an FDA approved product um, that, e- that exists, uh, fibrinogen, con- fibrinogen concentrate product um, here in the States. There's less evidence for fibrinogen transfusion in trauma as opposed to, you know, the freeze dried plasma uh, extrapolation is a little bit easier for me to make because we know that the plasma data is pretty solid, both pre-hospital and, and hospital resuscitation wise. Whether or not fibrinogen is going to hold the same promise, I think it remains to be seen. There's a American Journal of Emergency Medicine study from 2018 out of Iran that looked at fibrinogen concentrate in their shock trauma patients, and they showed significant mortality benefit. And I'm like, whoa, this one's great. And then you start to dig into the details a little bit, and there's, sele- there's selection bias. There's, there's some uh, really uh, significant biases that exist in that yeah. study. I'm not sure that I would put... Uh, too much stock in it other than being thought-provoking. Let's put it on the radar and keep an eye on it, dig a little bit deeper, dig into the transfusion uh, data and see what comes of it. I think it's definitely something that's promising for us. So wrapping it all up, let's just sum it up for everybody, kind of the take-homes on this one, Casey. Here's here's what we know. (coughs) If you're the biggest whole blood proponent in America for, for EMS, and you were sitting in one of these chairs, I don't know that you could argue any of these points. And that's really where I wanted to end up. And this is not an anti-whole blood discussion. This is not an anti-whole blood stance. It's a, this is a complex question with complex answers. And it's not a one size fits all. We all agree that large volume crystalloid infusions in shock trauma patients is bad. Agree. Period. There's no, no, more, no commas. We, we agree that whole blood is the perfect resuscitation product for people that are bleeding to death. Agreed? Period. No, no, more, no more discussion there. Transport time in hemorrhagic shock, especially penetrating hemorrhagic shock patients, is still of the essence. I may get some arguments there. I don't know that the period's quite as bold in that sentence, but when you're talking under 20 minutes, which is what we're dealing with primarily here in Montgomery County, I feel, you feel that that's still the case. Blood products, you know, it, it goes without saying, right, that they have to be treated with the utmost care uh, and, and managed correctly, and that takes a lot of system work. It takes a lot of individual work, teamwork, uh, to take this and, and really uh, take care of it the way it should be taken care of. Yeah, I mean, willy-nilly give a, a, a trauma patient blood in the field that may cause no benefit or potential harm and take that away from a triple a patient that's ruptured in the hospital that we know that's potentially life-saving that's probably a misuse of resources whole blood and ems 
I'll say it again. I'll say it till I'm hoarse and blue in the face. It's not a yes or no question. In an ideal world, if size and times and budgets were no option and no concern and didn't didn't play a role, then we go back to number two. It's whole blood's ideal for shock trauma, but how you roll it out in your individual service depends on so many other moving parts besides what you have in just your service. There's budgetary concerns, there's training, there's maintenance, there's waste minimization, there's exchange, there's donation. Do your hospital partners have an exchange program? Are your hospital trauma services even, even using whole blood? Where are your trauma systems in your trauma centers? I mean, we're lucky in Montgomery County that that's why our 19 minute trauma activation transport time exists because we got three level two trauma centers that are very, very geographically uh, perfectly, convenient, perfectly conveniently located, located. Perfectly located. And if you move the chess pieces a little bit and you created a pseudo Montgomery County with no level two trauma centers that were developed and high functioning and we have excellent relationships with, then we probably would be way further down the road to, to, a, to a blood program. And then mm -hmm. lastly, we're gonna we're gonna keep on our, our eye on our options, which I think it's very very promising. I think freeze dried plasma is you know has evidence for it. It's very very promising. We're we're waiting on the FDA approval and kind of to move forward with that. It's actually already in the budget. Uh, and then this fibrinogen concentrate. I'm intrigued. I think that it's it's not ready for prime time here. Uh, but we're going to keep digging through the literature, have the guys dig through the literature, see what more we can find and explore it and kind of wait for more evidence as with the, the whole blood. I'm not being a total anti, we're never going to do this, but I want to be able to put it together correctly. And that's what the closing shot, my closing uh, parting shot is for our medics that are listening. If you want this literature uh, reference list, I'm happy to share it with you. If you take nothing else away from this, I, what I want you to take away from it, MCHD medics out there, is that this is first and foremost on our mind as well. Absolutely. And we are not saying no to whole blood and shutting the door and getting on uh, Google and playing Wordle. We, this is, consumes a lot of our thought and a lot of our uh, bandwidth because we see it around us. We are just like y'all. We see that tons of surrounding services are moving forward with whole blood. Texas has been sort of an epicenter for the pre-hospital whole blood uh, movement, thanks to all the great work from Strack and from the San Antonio folks and other surrounding services, ESD 48 here in yeah. Houston, and you know, Eric Bank and, and, and CJ Winkler and all these, and Dr. Miramontes and in San yeah. Antonio, all these people that have done this great work. We're watching that and we wanna make sure that we're not in the wrong here we don't want to be behind the curve with where we should be in trauma resuscitation but there's tons of background work and tons of thought that has gone into why we are at our decision today our decision today is not our decision tomorrow our decision today is different than what we had decided yesterday so this is an evolving thought process an evolving care paradigm and we want to assure the mchd listeners that your medical directors are trying their best to stay on top of this and trying their best to formulate what's best for the community as a whole, what's best for the budget, what's best for the service, what's best for our patients. And that's- Couldn't, couldn't that's, agree more, that's, Casey. That's and I, I wanna give a, a personal plug for Dr. Patrick for really doing the, the heavy lift on this and putting this together. Well thought out, 
well referenced. My only question to you, usually in the show notes, guys, we have, you know, a graph or we have a couple of references. This is really a great reference document. Is there some way that you could add these references? So if other services want to take their deep dive or consider a whole blood program, that they have those references available? Can we put those somehow in the show notes or get your bibliography for the show notes? Sure, we'll put the references in the notes. They'll be there. And we'll, I think for our MCHD medics, if anybody wants to look a little further, we can probably host the PDFs on the MCHD website as well. I'll uh, talk to uh, Calvin and make sure that's doable. We've done that with other PDFs in the past, EKGs and things like that. No, so that's a great So thought. take a that's look a on the thought. website. So give, give, you, give you access to all the, the background, the whole paper, not just the, our interpretation of the paper, our high points, but the actual paper itself. And I'll leave it with, from a reference standpoint, I've seen a lot of arguments made with weak references to prove a point. And I've tried to be as fair the data and the literature as I can possibly be, pick out the retros- I mean the, the retrospective and, and lower the weight on those, concentrate on more prospective data, uh, you know, higher quality evidence. There's so much out there and you really could pick and choose from the lower rungs of, of evidence, whatever argument you wanted to make. So I've tried to be as unbiased and as fair as possible in this process. And if you want a quick review, I'm going to do a shameless plug for the podcast. Go back to a great episode we had with one of our mentors, Dr. Tony Supal of, uh, from Arkansas, who is just an EBM wizard and really, uh, I think, explains this in a way that makes sense even to me. We've gone a little bit over. Thank you for some extra time for this one. This is a hot topic and one that you can't really do in a 10-minute soundbite, so thanks for staying over the 40-minute mark. But this is sort of a double, like a double uh uh, LP or double CD uh, set. This is like our white album. So this is this took this took double the time. So thank you for bearing with us. As always, if you have questions or concerns, email at podcast at mchd-tx.org. We'll be up on YouTube with this one, so you can see our faces if you want to. You don't have to. Leave us a like or a review wherever you listen or watch. We love five stars. I like five stars. So uh, just lie to me to make me feel good about myself. That's totally fine. If you have questions about this, if you want to discuss this further, if you think that we are ninnies and absolutely wrong, I'm, I'm open. This is one where I have not made up my mind forever. I've made up my mind for today. But I am open to discussion. I am open to evidence that I may have missed. I'm not uh, an EBM guru by any means. This is a uh, PubMed search and some digging around on a Saturday night. I, I should have other hobbies. I should be bowling, uh, something else. But this is what this is what this is what I enjoy looking at. So s- please, if you want to uh, send us a rebuttal, I'm happy to go back and forth. Thank you all for listening. As always, thank you, Dr. Dixon, for joining us. Have a great afternoon. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, Incompetech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.